This week, a discussion on the 18th century Enlightenment movement, including natural rights, reason, and self-improvement principles. Messiah College professor John Fia explains. Checks and balances, right? Why do you need checks and balances? Because if one, if one branch of government, their passions run wild, they need to be controlled and checked by another branch of government, right? So here we're suggesting that reason needs to be checked, or reason needs to check the passions. Professor Fia also explores the relationship between religion and the Enlightenment and how it differed in America and Europe. More after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, welcome everyone. Uh, like we were talking about last class, we are now shifting a little bit into a conversation and discussion about some of these, I would say these essential themes of 18th century America. We've spent the last, what, couple months talking about you know, these regions, you know, and how the colonies developed, uh, how those colonies became integrated into the mercantile empire, right, of the British Empire, the cultural empire. Uh, today, uh, we want to start with our first major theme, and that is we want to talk about, a little bit about intellectual history today and this movement in 18th century America. Really, it begins in late 17th century America, but this movement known as the Enlightenment, now, when you think about the Enlightenment, what kind of things come to mind? Yeah, Alexis. Uh, Benjamin Franklin. Okay, ben why Benjamin Franklin? With, like, the, um, kind of like the freedom, liberty, like when we talk about, like, liberalism okay. in that sense, and John Locke as well, with, okay. like, the freedoms that come up. All right, so certainly, and we'll talk about this actually in, in the next couple of class periods, right? Certainly the Enlightenment is about politics in some ways, right? Natural rights, right? And again, we'll get back to this. Good. What else comes to mind? The Enlightenment. This is, by the way, isn't this, isn't this the class when you were in high school taking history, you know, like, oh, we're doing the Enlightenment today. I find, you know, this is when you, you're kind of eyes glaze over and, you know, there's nothing exciting here. Yeah, Caleb. Reason. Okay, good. Reason. How many of you have heard of the Enlightenment used uh, as or described as the age of reason? Right? We'll come back to reason again. Anyone else? What figures do you think about when you think about the Enlightenment in the 18th century? We heard about Franklin. We heard about Locke. Uh, any other names hit you? Jefferson. Nick? Hmm? Jefferson. Okay, good. Thomas Jefferson in America, often known as a man of the Enlightenment. Voltaire. Good. So we have these Frenchmen, right? Rousseau, Voltaire. Uh, there was this guy Diderot who, who wrote the encyclopedia. Good. Anyone else? Those are the big ones. All of those names, we could add, you know, uh, David Hume to the list. Uh, you know, a bunch of others we could add if we wanted to make a long list of the most important figures of the Enlightenment. Most of those figures that we learn about in school when we learn about the Enlightenment are part of what historians call the High Enlightenment. And what I mean by the High Enlightenment 
is that these are kind of intellectuals that usually surround themselves with, around power. Paid, they have patronage. Uh, their, their patrons are the kings and the queens, the monarchs. They tend to live uh, very uh, different lives from normal people. They are intellectuals. They are thinkers. And that's what they do. That is their calling. That is their vocation, right? To write, to think, and so forth. Their hands aren't dirty, right? In other words, right? These are the great kind of thinkers of the age, so to speak, right? The high enlightenment, right? And, and usually it's associated with France, uh, the philosophes, as they're called, the philosophie in France. There's an English enlightenment, a Scottish enlightenment, right? But it's, it's largely understood in its European context. What I want to suggest today and over the course of the next two classes is that the Enlightenment in America, in the American colonies in the 18th century, looks very different from the high Enlightenment of the 18th century in Europe, where you just have a bunch of people sitting around in coffee shops talking about ideas and sort of reading, the, oh, did you read the latest piece by Rousseau today? Why, yes, you know, pass me the decaf, right? Um, very different in uh, America. So let's think about the Enlightenment in America this way. And some of you have had me for the U.S. survey class have, have, have been there when I've done this, but not everybody has had me for that class. Raise your hand. How many of you want to make a better life for yourself? How many of you want to improve your life? Yeah, I mean, every hand in the room goes up, right? Uh, you're, all, the reason, you're in college, you know, you're, that's why you're sitting here, right? I'm guessing most of you want to get a college degree because you want to improve your life, you want self-improvement, you want to better your life. You may even want to, you know, some of you who are, if you're a first-generation college student, you know, you may want to sort of pursue a life that your parents or your grandparents didn't have, right? Uh, college degree kind of thing. Um, in some ways, that, if you raised your hand, and all of you did, I would, I would suggest that you then have been more influenced by the fundamental ideas of the American Enlightenment than you realize. Now, usually when I bring this up to students, they will say, or maybe some of you are assuming, who has, you know, everyone wants to improve themselves, right? You know, I mean from the beginning of time, right? I mean, if you're a human being, you want to improve your life. You want to strive. You want to make something. You want to rise, right? You want to be ambitious and become something. Get a you know, good job or make more money that your, than your parents did or something like that, right? Um, but what if I were to suggest to you that the idea of wanting to improve yourself is actually a relatively new thing in human history? Right? And this idea of wanting to improve your life or improve society suggests that, number one, it's possible. In other words, think about New England Puritans for a minute. You are not so stained and depraved from your sin nature that you can't rise above it and make something of yourself. You are not stuck in some type of a conservative caste system. 
in which your bloodline determines whether or not you will be successful or not. If you reject that idea, you have drunk deeply from the well, if you will, uh, of the Enlightenment. So imagine, you know, imagine like a medieval peasant. Okay, a medieval peasant, pretty, how does a medieval peasant, just take a guess, how does a medieval peasant spend his or her day? Some of you study medieval history, Jackson. Working in the fields. Working in the fields, right? Uh, Dylan, you want to add to that? I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, pl- he's usually on a plow, right? Or behind a horse, right? Plowing, sowing, reaping, agricultural stuff, right? No medieval peasant, say 18 to 22-year-old medieval peasant, is out there in the field saying, I may be on the field now, right? But one day, my kids, they're going to go to college. You know, they're going to become something. No, they're not even thinking that. They're probably thinking, i got to get the field done. And if they're thinking about anything other than their work, they're probably thinking, like, where am I going to go when I die? Right? How do I, how do I get right with God? It's a completely different worldview. But the idea that now improvement is possible, that one can actually change the world, and this gets to your point, Caleb, about by exercising reason is a new thing. It's not something that has been a defining marker of human history for tens of thousands and thousands of years. It emerges right in this moment. And again, it's a transatlantic idea. So it merges in, you know, the high enlightenment in France and England and so forth. But in the colonies, this idea of improve, uh, this idea of the enlightenment is always connected with this notion of improvement. I want to talk about that here in a second. So, so what I want to do today is I want to introduce some of the central tenets of the enlightenment in America. And then over the course of the next couple of days, we'll, we'll, we'll dig even deeper uh, into that. So today I want to really wrestle with this kind of a, more at a 30,000 foot level, right? What is the Enlightenment and how does the Enlightenment, what does the Enlightenment look like in America, in the colonies, the British American colonies, okay? Everyone clear where we're headed today? So I want to leave you with four uh, essential ideas today about the Enlightenment. And the first one we've kind of already covered but I want to I riff on it a little bit more. Um, first, the Enlightenment is about self-improvement. Uh, progress. If you believe in progress, if you believe that you individually can improve yourself or that society can progress, you're in the Enlightenment camp. Now, again, think about this in the context of the 18th century. The idea that you can overcome the limits of the world. What are some limits that are placed on people's lives in the 18th century? Or even in the 17th century? What limits people? Okay, how does wealth limit you? I would think wealth would be something that would allow you to do all kinds of things most people can't do. Well, lack of wealth. Lack of, okay, good. Lack of wealth, right? So, so poverty or, or not having money, right, could be a limit 
uh, placed on you. And, and certainly there were many in what we call in colonial America the lower sort, right, who were limited by lack of money and lack of opportunity as a result of not having money. Good. What else? What other limits are placed on your life? Jackson. Um, your, the religion that you practice. How does religion serve as a limit? Uh, if you're living, say, in Puritan New England and you are, say, a Catholic, you have no yeah. chance to do anything. Good luck. Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, you know, Messiah University is a Christian university. Uh, many of you, if not all of you, are Christians, right? Does your, does your Christian faith place any limits on your life? I mean, if you're going to say, I'm a Christian, is that going to place any kind of limits on you? Of course it will, right? Now, you might want to go, like, commit adultery, right? And you can do it. You're free to do it. But hopefully, as a Christian, you might say, uh, I don't think that's a good idea because Scripture or church tradition or whatever says that that's wrong. What do you mean? What do you mean I can't commit adultery? I'm free, Right? Yeah, and you technically aren't going to go to jail for it. <laughs> but Christianity has placed a limit on you if you're serious about your faith. Right? So, so religion becomes uh, a kind of limit, right? The, the whole very notion of the Puritan idea of total depravity, the Calvinist idea, is a limit. Because it suggests you are so depraved that you can't rise above that. The only, what, for Calvinists, what's the only way you can improve your life? And rise above the limits. Well, yes, but while you're living. You're right, Nick. You're dying. Is the, yeah. but, but, but while you're living. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, it was like if God rescued you from yeah. yourself? Yeah, if you're saved. If you're, if, you're, if you're a Christian, God can lift you above the sin, but only God can do that. You don't have the human potential to do that in Puritan Calvinism, right? Because your will is so broken and sinful that there's nothing you can do apart from God helping you. That's what the Puritans believed. The Enlightenment will challenge that notion and say that your sinful nature has not broken you to such an extent that you can't rise above it through through exercise of reason, through hard work, through individual effort. Right? This is a new thing in the history of the world that we haven't seen before. Progress. So, enlightenment must always be understood when we talk about it in terms of self-improvement. must always be understood in the context of what it is challenging. And it's challenging an older Christian, Protestant and Catholic, worldview of what is possible for human beings. Now, let me illustrate this one more way. In a Christian worldview, say the Middle Ages, right, or the Puritans, where is history moving? 
Where's history ultimately going to end? What direction is it going? Where's the ultimate sort of, you know, we use this word telos, right? What is the end of history in a Christian worldview, Asa? All right, the rapture, let's be, that's specific. Let's be more general. What is it? What is it? Yeah, the return of Jesus, right? Or the return of God will come and will we'll end it all, right? That's kind of the Christian, what we call teleology. That's where history's moving. That's what Christians of all faith, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, right? They all believe that history is ultimately moving towards God wrapping it up. We call this theological, theologically, we call this eschatology, right? The, the, the end times when God will bring an end to his creation, right? The Enlightenment has a completely different understanding of human history and the way history is moving, right? Because if progress is the ultimate goal of human history, history is ultimately moving towards the overcoming of all limits, Right? If we just apply reason, if we just apply our minds, educate ourselves, learn new things, knowledge, gain new knowledge. Right? In the Enlightenment, knowledge is not fixed. You see what I mean by fixed knowledge? If you live in the Middle Ages, where do you find knowledge? The Bible. The Bible or the church, right? So there's only a certain amount of knowledge that is contained in a book or in official church teachings. But the Enlightenment suggests that knowledge is progressive. It, it, you, can, you can always apply reason and come up with new knowledge through experimentation, through th- more thinking, right? So ultimately, history in an Enlightenment perspective is moving towards the overcoming of all limits through the application of reason. This is what we mean by improvement. Like, if you apply yourself and apply your education, your, your rational ability, you can rise above whatever weakness you have because you're poor or because you were born a certain way or so forth, right? So in the Enlightenment idea, history is just, you know, there is kind of no end. Ultimately, you know, in its purest form, I should say, we're going to reach some kind of utopia where all limits will be overcome, all disease, all, uh, you know, unethical things. Um, hey, we, we'll even cheat death, right? As long as we apply reason, we'll figure out some way to cheat death. That is the teleology of the Enlightenment. That is the way history is moving. So when you hear people say you're on the right or the wrong side of history, usually what they're saying is if you don't believe in progress, you're on the wrong side of history, Right? And we can, you know, we can get into that today, but, but I don't want to, I don't want to delve. I mean, we could get into that another time. I don't want to delve into that. So the Enlightenment is about self-improvement. One more point I want to make about this before I go to the next slide. The Enlightenment is often described as a very individualistic effort. If you apply reason, you will improve, right? You will, if you get educated... Right? If you get a degree or study something for a particular time, you'll improve your life. You'll gain knowledge and so forth. And that's true. But one of the things that's really interesting about the Enlightenment, uh, we see some of this in Europe too, but in America is, the Enlightenment in America is often cultivated in communities. 
So you have, later on we'll talk about, next class we'll talk about Benjamin Franklin's Junto. Remember I mentioned that some of you were at my convocation address that I gave uh, months ago. I talked about the Junto, right? This, this group of ordinary tradesmen. What was Ben Franklin's trade? Printing. He was a printer, right? I mean, you think of Ben Franklin as sitting in continental, you know, the Continental Congress. But when Ben Franklin came home from work every day, he had ink all over his hands. Right? You know, he had to clean up. He was, a, he was a tradesman. He was a worker. He would gather with a bunch of other artisans, like blacksmiths and carpenters and so forth. They met once a week in this club called the Junto, and they described the club as a, as a club for mutual improvement. There's no better enlightenment definition than that, right? A club for mutual improvement. They get together, they read a text together and talk about it. Someone would like present a paper that they wrote and they would debate it and so forth. But you see this over and over again that the enlightenment is both an individual effort, but the enlightenment improvement, self-improvement always comes within some kind of community as well. So there's my first premise of the enlightenment. The enlightenment is about self-improvement. Second, this one's a little more complex, uh, enlightened people, right, people who are enlightened, were able to employ reason as a necessary check to the individual passions. When you think about check, what do you, what do you think about that word check? Oh, checks and balances. Yeah. Yeah, good. Checks and balances, right? Why do you need checks and balances? Because if one, if one branch of government, their passions run wild, they need to be controlled and checked by another branch of government, right? So here we're suggesting that reason needs to be checked, or reason needs to check the passions. Now, if you were in college in the 18th century, if you were a student at one of the 18th century colleges, and there weren't many, were, you know, Yale or Harvard, Yale, uh, King's College, which later becomes Columbia, the College of Philadelphia, which later becomes the uh, University of Pennsylvania, William and Mary was around then. I'm probably missing, I'm probably missing one or two here. I can't remember. Um, in your senior year, you would take a class with the college president, right? And that, usually a minister. <laughs> and the class would be titled um, Moral Philosophy, which essentially would be ethics, right? Moral philosophy. And there'd be a unit in that class on the discipline of faculty psychology. Faculty psychology. And basically in that unit, you would study the human faculties, now, one of the things you would learn in that class if you were taking it, you know, you're a senior at a college, you're getting educated, right, which would be in a very small minority of the population, right, is you would learn that there are two dominant passion, two dominant faculties. Anyone know what they are? Take a guess from looking at the screen. What are the two dominant faculties that all humans possess according to this 18th century faculty psychology, Dylan? And passion. Reason and passion. Uh, you are born with one of these faculties, and you have to cultivate the other one. Which one are you born with? Passion. passion right? You know, think about a baby. 
you know, a baby doesn't like, you know, if the baby has to go to the bathroom and needs its diaper change or needs food, right? The baby is not making a kind of rational choice. Like, oh, mom's busy now. I'll come back to her later, you know, or something like there's no reason involved, right? The baby starts to cry because its rational faculty has not been cultivated yet, right? So what you would learn in this class is that the point of being an educated person is to make sure that you train your rational faculty so that it's strong enough to put down, usually they're described as the unruly passions. So in some ways, the ra- your reason, your rational faculty is like a muscle. Think about lifting weights, right? You want to build that muscle and make it stronger and stronger so when passions arise that are going to get you into trouble, unruly passions, you can rationally think this through and and temper them, control them. Right? You ever, you ever like, uh, I often use this illustration, you ever ever talk to someone who's like they're dating someone or something that they know it's just a bad relationship, you know, and then they're like, but I love them. You know, I'm in love. You know, what do you mean? No, this is just a terrible relationship for you. If you were thinking clearly, right, you would know this is a bad, abusive, whatever relationship. But, but we're so, you know, oh, he, but we've been together so long. One is the passions, right? Your friend is exercising reason, and he's telling you to exercise reason, right? <laughs> that this is bad. If you're an educated person, your reason, your reason, your rational capacity, your rational faculty is going to be strong enough to suppress those urges. That's why we need educated people, the founding fathers and the 18th century colonial enlightenment people. That, that's why they believed we need educated people. We need somebody to tell the people who are storming the Capitol on January 6th that that's a bad idea. Control your passions. If, the, if they were here today, that's what they would say, right? Control yourself. So the whole idea was you want to be an enlightened person, and thus you have to educate yourself to do that. You have to train that muscle. There's always this war going on in the human psyche. The enlightenment teachers would say, this, this professor would say to you in the 18th century, and... One, and remember, these are all religious colleges, too, at this point, at least. So the passions, where are they going to lead you religiously? If you're a Christian, say, where are the passions going to take you if they get too out of control? Towards sin. Towards sin, right? So there's even something Christian about training your rational faculty because you can realize, like, this is not a good idea, what I'm doing right now. But of course, if you, you know, if you never were educated, if, you don't, if your rational faculty is not built up, the 18th century Enlightenment thinkers would say, this professor would say in your class, you're just going to do stupid things. You're going to go off and, and, and uh, you know, be followed by your passions, and they're going to lead you into bad places. So there's a kind of moral component to this. That's why you're studying this, by the way, in moral philosophy, in an ethics class, if you're living in the 18th century and you're part of one of these colleges, right? Questions on that? Everybody clear on the second point? So self-improvement, 
and they're all, they all build off each other, right? Self-improvement also has everything to do with reason, educating oneself, controlling the passions, because that's what true improvement is. Third, they're getting even more, more wordy now. To be enlightened, one needs to direct their passions, right? We've defined what those are away from parochial concerns and toward a universal love of the human race. What do, we mean by, what, do, what, do, what do I mean when I say parochial concerns here? What do you think about when you think about parochial concerns? What does the word parochial mean? Test your uh, kind of SAT vocabulary knowledge. Yeah, Asa. It's kind of like more individualized, like your individual, like, Things that pertain to you. Okay, yeah. So, so parochial people who are parochial tend to be, you know, naturally kind of selfish or narcissistic, right? This is my world, and I don't want to see anything beyond it, right? Parochial. Good. Anyone else want to take a stab at that? Parochial. Just simply like narrow in their understanding. Yeah, kind of narrow, like limited. You know, you're not seeing the bigger picture. You're just kind of focused on your own kind of, kind of identity or your own issues, right? You don't see yourself as part of something bigger than yourself, right, is the idea. So, so when we think about, you know, one of the things I failed to say earlier, when we think about the Enlightenment, we're, we're really thinking about a, the philosophy of, mod, of modern life, right? Modernity, as we often describe it, right? Modern life. And it's this idea that you always, Enlightenment people always appeal when they're making an appeal, whether it be a political appeal, a religious appeal, whatever it might be, cultural, something cultural. They're always appealing to universal principles that all human beings share. This gets to your point earlier, Alexis, about, about Locke and rights, right? And a person, if, if a person is consistent, and, you know, we, we haven't even touched the idea yet about how consistent people are about these Enlightenment ideals, right? Because if they were really consistent, we might, you know, we might have a very different world in the 18th century, particularly when it comes to things like slavery and, and injustice and, you know, so forth, right? So they took the, we're talking, in the, we're talking up here, right? We're, we're going to, next couple classes, we're going to break this down to see how this actually looks on the ground, right? If, they're consi- if these Enlightenment thinkers are consistent, if modern, the modern project is consistent. But Locke said, right, we are all endowed with natural rights, endowed by a creator with natural, well, that's Jefferson, right, with natural rights. So we all have them by the virtue of the fact that we're human beings. We all have rights. So when you make an appeal, you appeal to things that everybody holds in common not the things that make people different. Right? So, you know, uh, someone who is embracing a kind of enlightenment brand of politics, say, today, would appeal not to a particular identity group, right? A particular racial group or a particular, um, you know, uh, religious group or, you know, something else, a particular class, right? They would appeal to say, we need to come together as a human race. And thus, we're going to have differences. 
but we need to build a society around what makes us the same. Right? So that's what I mean by uh, we need to move away, the Enlightenment says, right? We need to move away from these parochial, local concerns. Sometimes they're described as local attachments, right? The things that make us unique from other people, they're fine. But in order to advance society and improve society, we all have to come on board with the things that make us the same. So these are universal appeals to rights, right, would be an enlightenment approach, right? We all have rights. And to the degree that you're not respecting everybody's rights in your society, that is a degree to which your enlightenment principles are failing, like, if you believe in the Enlightenment, but you don't give rights to a certain group of people in your society, don't talk to me about the Enlightenment, because you're not consistently applying it, is what the 18th century thinkers would say. Right? So, so I think the Enlightenment would reject, again, we're not here to judge it, or we're just trying to understand it, right? The Enlightenment would reject kind of a kind of identity kind of politics, right? Or an ident- a way, you know, in which people understand themselves based on a particular race or gender or class or religion, and they would want to think about everything that everybody has in common. Universal love of the human race, right? Not universal love of one particular part of the human race, but... You know, this is, why, this is why Tom Paine in the American Revolution, if you remember reading Common Sense in another class, right? This is why he talks about himself as a citizen of the world. I'm not a citizen of a nation, a town, a community, some local parochial place. I'm a citizen of the world, right? Because I align myself with the, with the human cause. Now, again, next couple of days, we'll... we'll We'll think about some of the critiques of this. Right? We'll think about the way in which 18th century people uh, maybe disagreed with the Enlightenment and so forth. But this is, this is the idea. Questions on that? So again, by this point, we've got one more to go here, a couple more to go. One more, I think. But, but at this point, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, the Enlightenment hopefully is a little more relevant to your life. It gives you something to think about a little bit more than just, you know, a bunch of kind of elite white guys sitting around in a coffee shop in Paris, <laughs> you know what I mean, who are, who are being controlled by, you know, being funded by the king, right? It, it doesn't seem as distant because all of these are issues, reason over passion, self-improvement whether or not our identity should be rooted in a particular parochial kind of understanding of who we are or some kind of universal understanding. These are, all, these are all ideas that modern life, in modern life, we're debating today, right? These are the, this, is, this is the, you know, suddenly enlightenment, the modernity becomes much more relevant uh, to us. I'm not saying you have to agree or disagree with it, but realize how much these ideas have perhaps influenced, influenced you and how these ideas, again, are relatively new. Last point I want to talk about here, and that is the Enlightenment in America always existed in conversation and in compromise with the deeply held Christian faith of the American people. Now, we've talked about 
three different colonial societies so far, British colonial regions, right? Um, it's probably, probably, you know, it's probably not the best exercise to do, but it might be helpful right now. Try to rank them in terms of, uh, you know, the role that religion played in the development of these societies. What would be the least religious of the three colonial societies we've looked at so far? Jackson. Virginia. Virginia. Well, I make an argument, Jackson. Um, I mean, they were Anglican, but yeah. there wasn't really any established, like, churches. Nobody really practiced the faith. Okay. I mean, that's somewhat stereotypical, but I see where you're going, right? I mean, there was an established church, the Anglican church. Um, people did go. They practiced, you know, so whatever you're defining practice. At the same time, though, you're right, right? The, the, you want to add to that, Nolan? I said they're more focused on commerce and making money for Yeah. The, the larger ethos, you, Jackson, I think you're exactly right, is not religion. So your answer is, is correct, right? I think the, Virginia, the Chesapeake is one of the kind of, you know, religion is there, but it's not, you know, absolutely kind of essential to the kind of uh, ethos and the culture of the colony. Good. What would you say is second? Asa. Okay, why? Make the case. Well, I think, uh, like, there, the fact that there was more religious freedom made it so that, like, religion was less, like, a universally shared part of everyone's okay. culture. It was more like your own religion was more of like an individual thing rather than like a shared cultural experience that everyone had. Okay. And also I think there was, similarly to Virginia, a bigger focus on commerce and trade. Yeah, I think, I think you know, this gets to the motivations for why William Penn founded it, right? There's this economic kind of motivation, right? This kind of economic liberal motivation to make money and as well as to, to you know, celebrate religion, but in all its diversity, right? Not one dominant uh, kind of church. Good. And then that leaves us with what? New England, in which you have a state church, in which you have Puritanism, right? You know, it, it, is, a, it is a deeply, deeply Calvinist religious society. Um, but I think in all three regions, I think we find, um, you know, deeply embedded in the mindset of the settlers is some kind of religious sensibility, right? Even in Virginia, you have people going to church, right? The Anglican church is important uh, to them, right? They give their money to the Anglican church, right? Because it's a state church, uh, you know, in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, religion becomes important because of the way it's, it can be freely practiced, right? Um, and, of course, New England, where it sort of saturates the, the landscape. Uh, the point is, there is naturally going to be, in, in kind of the way we think about the Enlightenment and the High Enlightenment, right? There's naturally going to be a tension between religion and, and the Enlightenment and these reason, right? So if you were to take the Enlightenment to its logical conclusion in terms of religious belief, right? Forget about, just forget about the colonies for a second, but if you were to take the Enlightenment to its logical conclusion, where would you be religiously, Dylan? Well, you'd probably be landing on that people can, like, improve themselves and be, like, morally good without, without Christ. Okay. So where would you end up? Like, how would I categorize that kind of religion? So Dylan said, if you didn't hear him, he said, he said you, could, you could 
improve your life without any kind of Christian faith, right? Or Christ or God, or right? So, so if you took that idea to its logical conclusion, where would you end up? Uh, like humanism? Yeah, humanism or what? Atheism, right? You know, if everything's reason and everything can only explain, be explained by reason, you know, I guess you could try to apply reason to kind of prove the existence of God, but ultimately Christianity and all religions do have a certain dimension of faith to them, right? Believe, right? Which is, tends to be a very irrational idea, right? I mean, miracles, miracles are an irrational idea. You realize that? Like the idea that a supernatural being can come into your life, come into your town or whatever, and, and do something that violates the laws of reason and science. That's irrational. That's not an enlightenment thing, right? But I'm guessing, you know, there are, well, I'm not guessing, there are millions and millions of people all around the world, especially in the United States today, but also there were thousands and tens of thousands of people in colonial America who believed they could improve themselves. They wanted to get educated. They want to control their passions. They wanted to be citizens of the world. And they believed in miracles, <laughs> right? And they believed God answered prayer. And they believed God interjected. And they believed in God, period, right? So one of the things that I want to do next class is I want to break this down even further. I want to sort of think about the, way, the, le- you know, the degrees to which uh, these religious sensibilities either accept or reject um, you know, the, the idea of the Enlightenment. So, so let's take an example here. Let's just say you're living in Massachusetts and in the 18th century there's an earthquake, right? And if you were living in a pre-Enlightenment world, we've talked about this, I think, at some point this semester. If you were living in a pre-Enlightenment world, how would you interpret that earthquake? What would be your response? Guys, with you or your society. Okay. God has done something here that's to punish us. God is displeased. We're not fulfilling the covenant. We're not sustaining the city on a hill. People aren't becoming visible saints, right? God is punishing us by making the ground quake, right? And destroying buildings. Is that a very enlightenment way of understanding? An earthquake? No. Now, after the Enlightenment, how much you understand that earthquake, say in, let's say the earthquake happens in like 1700. In 1750, when the Enlightenment has had a more profound effect on New England culture, how much you understand the earthquake? Or how might an Enlightenment thinker, scientist, understand the earthquake? What would they need to do to make sense of why this earthquake happened? I mean, none, none of you are geologists. That's why you're being so quiet. But look, take a stab at it. Like, what would you have to figure out, Dylan? They go to the scene afterwards and try to examine the ground. They, okay. I don't know if they had I, any idea of, like, seismic activity okay. at that point, but... Yeah, you would pull, I don't know, pull whatever the 18th century equivalent of the Richter scale was, right? You'd pull that out, you know, you, 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 you'd measure the ground, you'd, you'd do scientific experiments, and you say, you know, you'd say, well, this earthquake happened because of these geological reasons, right? A very enlightenment, rational way of thinking about an earthquake. Now, does that mean that the earthquake didn't happen because God 
again, we're thinking as an 18th century Puritan here, right? Uh, Does that mean the earthquake didn't happen because God is, is punishing us? Could be both, right? In other words, you have this idea that still God brings natural disasters to punish us. And you're going to try to understand the earthquake in terms of science. This is what I mean when I say you can't pull the enlightenment. This is what life is like on the ground. You can't pull the enlightenment. You can't pull science historically. Now, you could do it, right? But in the 18th century, people did not. They did not pull the enlightenment out of their religious worldviews. Now, the Enlightenment could criticize those religious worldviews, but ultimately, most people access the Enlightenment alongside of their religious worldviews. So, I'm guessing, back to, let's, let's bring this to the 21st century. I'm guessing all of you are Christians, right? Or some of you, I'm not going to tell you to raise your hand or anything, but if you're Christians, right, and you probably are because you came to Messiah, um, you know, you probably believe that God answers your prayers or God is present or God is providential or some, you know, you believe somehow God is active in the world, right? But when I asked you if you wanted to improve yourself, you all raised your hand, right? It means like you believe you have the ability to improve yourself. Now, some of you might say, well, the only reason I do is because God helps me, right? Right? <laughs> But the very fact that you want to study something suggests that, and you want to make something of yourself, suggests that you believe you can do it. And maybe you can even do it. Maybe you separate that part of your life from even, you know, Christianity. Your Christianity, right? You get educated and you're a Christian on Sundays or whatever. This is what I mean when I talk about the way in which the Enlightenment in the 18th century is always working alongside of the worldview. It doesn't destroy the Christian worldview of the people. It doesn't undermine it. But it works alongside of it. Now, again, you might say, like, you know, you could critique that. You could say, well, this is not, you know, rational. Like, how could you believe that? How could you believe in science and believe in God, right? That's not our goal here. Our goal is try to understand the 18th century world. Question. Would you say that this is kind of like the beginnings of like the foundation for the idea of separation of church and state? Because like these are two important aspects of life and they can coexist, but they don't, shouldn't necessarily intermingle. Yeah, and that's a great question. So, so is this the beginning of the separation of church and state? I mean, you know, you don't normally think about it that way, but you know, I think if you're a person of the Enlightenment, you believe that the state is ultimately a secular a secular entity, right? Because the state government is built not upon the divine right of kings, right? In other words, you know, government is not built on God, right? It's not built on like, you know, God created America as a Christian nation or something like that, right? Government is based on what? Alexis, what did you say at the beginning of class? What is government based on? Like like your own individual rights, liberalism? Natural rights, Right? If you read the Declaration of Independence, there's nothing in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution about, you know, your, your God. Maybe your rights come from God, but ultimately you build your society not upon theology or the teachings of the church. You don't have a state church, right? You have a, a society built on enlightenment principles. 
John Locke's natural rights. Again, now again, the founders believed that those rights came from God, but you built your society on these universal, back to the universalism, right, these universal principles. While religion then is a kind of, in some ways, an irrational category, not completely, but in some ways an irrational category that the two shouldn't mix, right? Or that the Enlightenment and all its power of natural rights government uh, should not limit the right of people to worship and, and get in their face and tell them how they should conduct their spiritual lives. So, so the separation of church and state is in many ways is a kind of Enlightenment idea. Because the United States is one of the first nations that has anything like that, the colonies even. You know, the colonies are not separation of church and state. They have state churches, right? Yeah. Other questions? Yeah, no one. Wasn't the idea of deism very popular during the 18th century? Yeah, so the question is, wasn't deism popular? And I, that's what I want to start class on. We're, we're wrapping up here. But that's what I want to start class on on uh, Monday, right? I want to think about what are then all the options one could have when you integrate the Enlightenment, this fourth point, right? When you integrate the Enlightenment and religion, right? What, what do those options look like? Well, if you're a deist and you believe that God doesn't, God created but doesn't allow any kind of supernatural activity after that, that's pretty heavy leaning towards which side? Enlightenment or, yeah, the Enlightenment. Right? If you are one of these people who say, like, yeah, like, I believe we need to check the Richter scale on that earthquake, but it's really God. You know, yeah, I understand scientifically why the earthquake happened, but it really happened because God's punishing us. You might be on the other side of that enlightenment religion nexus, right, if you want to call it that. But nevertheless, you're still, the enlightenment is still happening in conversation with spiritual, religious things, there's not much religion left with deism, right? There's still a lot of religion left with the, with the earthquake example. So again, the goal here today is to get us started. We're going to spend two more class periods on the Enlightenment, and we're going to really dig in now what this looks like on the ground, right? But these are the big principles that we're going to be operating on, at, operating with as we start to think about the Enlightenment and uh, uh, as it develops in America and what that, what that eventually looks like. Okay? Good. See you Friday. Or, I'm sorry, Monday. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. Have you checked out our BookNotes Plus podcast? Taking the concept from Brian Lamb's long-running BookNotes TV program, the podcast offers listeners more books and authors. BookNotes Plus features a mix of new interviews with authors and historians and some old favorites from the archives. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.